Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, a part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. I didn't really care if you watched Thursday Night Football last night. Unless you had a fantasy interest, I know you weren't turning on that TV, Jeff. Good, so we can just skip it, right? Let's go I don't even right. have to answer the question. Well, It's a beautiful thing. There's much more pressing things to talk about, like how... The NBA Eastern Conference got a bit different yesterday, the other day, Jeff. Talk to me about how Dame Lillard is now a Milwaukee Buck. Milwaukee Bucks became way more dangerous on offense. However, I don't know if they really got better. Uh, well, I don't understand. You're, how tall is Drew Holiday? He's about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, right? Yeah. Dame Lillard, is he barely pushing six feet? I don't think Somewhere they got that Dame Lillard for his height or no, his defense. No, no, no. But, but here's my point it, it is you got a guy who is a shooter who will fit in well. I'm sure he'll be great on the pick and roll, stuff like that, when it comes to playing next to Giannis. But Drew Holiday was a true two-way point guard. He is more than – I mean, people don't realize he scored n- over 19 points a game last year next to Giannis. And, and he played intense – Really good lockdown defense. Lillard is not going to be able to do that. He's not a bigger point guard. He's not known for his defense. So the question is, how much better will Milwaukee be? Are they just going to try to outshoot everybody? Because maybe they can, especially if Middleton's healthy. But I don't know how you got particularly better as a result of this. I think this is the kind of move that you would expect the Sixers to make because it's a big name, splashy name. I just don't know if it make like the immediate reaction was, wow, they got Dame. I just don't know how much better they got. And the other thing is, and we'll, this is the next thing I guess we'll talk about is now where does Drew Holiday go? Well, if, because, I, if I have my way, he comes here. <laughs> right. But they traded Holiday to the West. There's no way that the Blazers plan is to keep Drew Holiday. No. It's to get young players and assets. Yes. It was really good that they got Aiton because I think that Aiton needed a fresh start. And I think that it might be, he might end up doing really well there. I just see them flipping Holiday now. So, what happens if instead of the Sixers get him? Because I think he'd be a perfect fit here. What if the, the Heat get him or the Raptors get him? Well, that's the concern. I mean, the East, mm-hmm. I know you're not sure. I think the East got better in the regular season. I think that Milwaukee will boat race teams in some games, but in a right. postseason where Drew Holiday's lockdown defense on stars became more valuable, I think that's where I'm not sure whether they really are better. But I think it was as much about making sure you got better and, and so much keeping Giannis, who has not opted in yet to an extension there. So they don't want to lose Giannis. Clearly, they felt like they had to do something. Now, does Miami try to send out Tyler Hero, who's already unhappy, to bring in Drew Holiday? Does Toronto try to do it? Can the Sixers get in on some three-team deal where they end up with Drew Holiday? Well, that's the problem. The the Sixers don't have the assets as far as draft capital to get Holiday at this point. The question is whether or not this now puts you in a position that 
you could do a three-team trade where Harden goes to the Clippers. The Clippers give assets in the way of draft capital to the Blazers, and then the Sixers end up with Holiday and don't lose anything other than Harden and some secondary pieces. Because if you have you have a really good top three, if you have Holiday at point guard, Maxi at the shooting guard, and Embiid as your starting center. But if you're the Clippers now, are, is, is this going to be the second time now that the Sixers get screwed with Harden? Harden spent the entire last season, his people, saying that he was going to go to Houston. And what did Houston ultimately do? I have no interest in Harden. Houston went out and got Van Vliet. So if I'm the Clippers now, what I would be doing is I would just be looking to trade directly to the Blazers and giving the capital and say, forget Harden. We have a chance of getting Holiday to add to our top two players. Look, I, I, maybe I'm just like dreaming because I want Harden out of here and I want it to work out. You just have big names that people are saying openly are on the market. Buddy Heald with the Pacers, Drew Holiday with Portland. Miami has players unsettled. The Sixers have unhappy players. So you, you just figure with that many people wanting their way out that something will happen. It just continues to be a bigger problem for the league that these moves can be forced so regularly now. Like, it just... It, <laughs> well, wait, wait, wait. But, but it wasn't. Lillard made it clear that he wanted to go to the Heat. Yes. He's ending up in a much colder place. Well, he Miami. is, but he's not going to stay in Portland. He said he wanted out. Okay. So okay. he forced well, okay. his way out. And, that, and that's just... You continue... Look... The same thing could happen here if the Sixers don't make the right decisions with Joel Embiid. So, like, you are a star-driven league where if you don't make moves to satisfy and keep the stars, the stars can just go someplace else. I think that's what that move was as much as anything else in Milwaukee. How else are you going to entice Giannis to stay in, in Milwaukee? Like, he doesn't have that much else around him. So I, I just think that there's enough pieces out there that you would think that Harden gets moved someplace. I just don't see who necessarily wants him. Like Drew Holiday had more games, I think, last season where he had 50 points, 40 points, like than than Harden. So he like I don't know. Does Portland value players for that? I don't what do you mean? I, I think what Portland values is young assets, young up-and-coming players. And so that's why the Sixers need to do some type of three-way deal because they just don't they don't have the capital. They're not going to trade Maxi for Holiday. I think so. The, I don't think that they can trade. I think I saw something that they can't trade anybody else with him for a month. Like they, if, if he goes, it has to be a player-for-player type deal or a three-way where they're just right. sending so, one so player you can, and you one can, back. So you can do the Harden holiday draft picks deal. Yes. I Look, I would love to see it. It does go into what the NBA announced a few weeks ago with resting stars because they'll now have two stars on their team and won't be able to rest them as much to get them through the season. Do you see who uh, the, the Bucks' first game with that new lineup will be against? No. Sixers. October 26th. No. No. So we're we're going to see what it looks like right from the start. Uh, I, I just, I, I keep telling you, I want to be excited about basketball, not contracts. I don't, I, you, can, you, can be, you can be as excited as you want about basketball. I don't know how anybody in the city right now 
as constructive as excited about the Sixers. I want. They're just not. I you, want they can they be, can though. they can do all the hoopla. They can bring in all the you know the little fanfare they want before the game. The Sixers are going to have a really hard time drawing a full house that is excited about this team as constructed without people seeing something on the court that says this is going to be different than a second second round exit again. Well, and it's, I mean, it's already becoming a circus. Harden's not going to show up for media day. He's probably not going to show up for training camp. Then what's he going to do? Okay. Harden never showed up. Harden never showed up for media day, even when he was there. Oh, but it's more true. Harden, Harden thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. He never gives anything as far as, as being somebody that you'd want to interview anyway. So who cares if he doesn't show up? Yes. You want, you want everybody to follow the rules, but James, the only person you're hurting you is yourself. All right. So I got a question for you then. Cause you've, you know, you've been completely apathetic with me about the flyers, even though I've loved that team for the last couple of years, the way they've played. Flyers mm-hmm. are obviously making changes, though they've been out outscored eight one in their two preseason games so far. But yeah. who are you more excited to watch this year? The Flyers, who are trying young guys and doing something new, but likely will lose a lot, or the Sixers, who are running it back that you don't think they Flyers. have any hope to get anything? I don't have to think twice about it. The Flyers, because because I see that they have made moves with their organization from the top. The, of people who care and are going to try to do the right thing. What I see with the Sixers is the same thing we've been seeing for years, which is this jumbled mess of seeing how many star flashy d- decisions we can make that are not followed up by any type of team. We have had year after year after year of the process and bringing in people, drafting people, trading for people, who have the apathy that you don't want the fans to have. You had to deal with Ben Simmons. You had to deal with Markel Fultz. You have to deal with James Harden. The Sixers just on top of not showing an ability to make the right decisions at the front office level. They have also not made and not brought in people that, that make this team lovable that make this team easy to root for. They're They're just not. They're the exact opposite of the Phillies, who in a few minutes will bring on Pat McCarthy to talk some baseball. But you watch those guys celebrate. You watch the party in the locker room after they clinch the playoffs. You, You watch the young guys that are getting playing time and making a difference. It's all of the things that we've asked for out of the Sixers are the things you're seeing out of the Phillies. Now, whether that bullpen holds up to do it, who knows? But the heart that that team shows and and how they let you see their personality, the the feeling in that ballpark is not a feeling that you're going to have in Wells Fargo Center. It's just not. Not at all. And by the way, they haven't had that feeling for a few years. I've been in that building. That's clearly why it's clearly why we need a new arena to get the feeling back, Jeff. Yeah, that, that's it. <laughs> They're not getting that new arena anytime soon. And if they don't, if they don't turn this around and make some good decisions right now, I mean, Drew Holiday would be not only a good decision from a basketball perspective, but from that's the kind of move that you make as a PR perspective. That is not you're bringing back one of the guys who was the start of the process is by it trading the, him. Is it not the perfect way to officially end the process, which we said yes. done for years? It, 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 it would, it, there's so many things that are right about it. And he's a likable guy and people liked him when he was, some people probably could pull out their jerseys from 
from back then. There's just a lot right to making that decision. We mentioned the Phillies. Uh, they did get to set their roster in terms of how their pitching rotation will be. Wheeler will go game one, Nola game two. You know, we'll see Suarez, Sanchez seem to be in the mix with Walker for other games. Um, but, it, you know, they played well coming down the stretch for as critical as people who have been. Um, they They've won 10 of 12 before last night's game. You know, they were 20 games. They do not make any of those games easy, though. No. The Phillies do not win easily. Do you? It is always a nail biter. Do you take pleasure in my stress texts that I send during the game? No, I don't. (laughs) No, because I'm watching and stressing, too. (laughs) I I just want to be able to feel that when they're up 5-0 in the sixth inning that the game's over. And I don't. I don't feel that any lead is safe sometimes. Well, I, a moment, a moment of silence. I, I, don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. Yeah, like I don't know what you want me to tell you. I've been saying that all along. Is you ask me, you always ask me my confidence level. My confidence level is is the same as it has been all season. Is that the pitching is a problem here? It's not the hitting. It's not the defense. As long as Rojas is playing, and that'll be to me, that'll be the interesting thing. When they run out on the field for game one, whatever time they announce that game one's going to be. You mean Monday night when they announce it for Tuesday? Yeah. <laughs> um, I just, I want to see Rojas running out the center field. That That's what I need to see. Okay, and, and that's that what you want. A lot more confidence that I'm not worried about the offense, then I'm not worried about the defense, and now it's just whether or not they got the pitching. That's what you want. Do yes. you think that's what you'll see? I think it depends on whether you get a left-hander or a right-hander. I think that Thompson is going to to use Rojas in situations that he thinks that he will succeed in. And those situations are usually right-handed pitching. All right. Well, let's keep the baseball talk going. We started the season talking baseball with our man, Pat McCarthy. We're going to come to the end of the season as we approach the playoffs with our man, Pat McCarthy. Pat, congratulations on your first season as a major league broadcaster. Oh, thanks guys. I appreciate it. Talk about the experience. Obviously not the season you guys were hoping for from, from that side of town uh, with the team, but talk about the experience for you out there, getting, getting it under your belt. Yeah, it's been uh it's been special. It's been an incredibly rewarding season for me personally just to have my first full season uh as a major league broadcaster and obviously in terms of the success of the Mets it didn't go the way that a lot of us had expected it to when we were down in Port St. Lucie in March. Uh but there's a lot of excitement around the club right now just because of the young prospects that they acquired at the trade deadline and and the way that they produced once they got to double A, because that's where a lot of them are. And they helped Binghamton reach the Eastern League Championship Series. And there's a core group of veterans here that are going to be back next year. So uh, I, I think that there's a lot of excitement around the team right now. I think a lot of us came to the realization around the deadline that this is how the season was going to finish. And now you can look forward to the offseason to see what Steve Cohen and Billy Epler do to ultimately build a team that they expect to contend in the next couple of years. Uh, before the season started, we talked about all the rules changes and how you were going to be able to, to address those as you dealt with fans and teaching them about all the new rules. How did it work out 
Was it the way that you expected? Was it different than you expected? What were the goods and the bads of all of this? Yeah, Jeff, that's an interesting question. I think for the younger players in the game, they adjusted pretty seamlessly because they had it in the minor leagues. I think that for some of the older teams, they struggled. And I spoke with David Robertson the other day about this, and he said he thinks that's one of the things that plagued the Mets early was that they had a veteran group of pitchers that were used to operating at at a certain way. And it took them a little bit of time to get used to the new rules, to the new pitch clock, to the disengagement rules, all these different things. And I I think that you combine that, you combine that with the fact that the WBC took away a lot of time for these guys in spring training to become accustomed to these rules because they didn't have them in the WBC. And I think that cost some veteran guys some prime opportunity to get used to the new rules. Uh, From a fan's perspective, I think everybody has if it's not universal that they're saying that it's perfect but i think from a fan perspective the overall experience is much better that you no longer have to dedicate three and a half hours to coming to a baseball game you are now consistently dedicating two hours and 40 minutes and i think the pace of the game is better and that was always my conversation with people last year when they would ask me about it is what's the main difference in the game? And I say, yeah, the time of the game is different, but the overall pace of the game is different. And I think we're seeing that at the big league level now. You know, you mentioned Dave Robertson's comments. We've had to watch here two guys who don't seem to have adjusted very well in Aaron Nola and Craig Kimball. Nola seems to just not be able to to get the ball moving, to get into position and, and move. And he is a veteran. And Kimball... is to the point that it just seems like he's actually going to miss it every time. He just ignores it. barely gets the ball up. Yeah. Um, Has has there been any talk about how how do you deal with veterans that go through this? Because you would think that veterans would be able to adjust over the course of a season, but it seems the veterans, not the younger players, are the ones that are not adjusting as well. Yeah, I I think that there are going to be certain guys that you're just going to have to accept that they are going to pitch at their pace. And they're going to figure out ways to make it work or in some cases not work. But I do think that there's going to be a delayed response in the next two or you know year or two in which rosters are built around being able to pitch around the clock with more athleticism and the ability to make adjustments on the fly. Uh, you weren't going to be able to do that right away. And I do think that that's going to take some time for guys. And I think now that guys will have a full offseason and a full spring training to figure it out, and more importantly, just a full season under their belts. We'll we'll see guys make adjustments. They have to. Otherwise, they're not going to survive in the league. You know, we talked the new rules. It's it's not just the, the pace of play. It's the excitement in the game. Runs are up. I was telling Jeff before we started, I didn't realize stolen bases are up almost 900 this season. That's a huge increase. Can you talk yeah. about just the excitement you've had calling the game? You know, the shift's gone, the... The, all these changes that led to not just a faster pace of play, but the type of play you got to see and call on the field. I think they have to actually make an adjustment with the stolen bases because it's it's impossible to throw runners out. You really can't do it. it you think about who some of the best defensive catchers are in baseball right now, right? JT Romuto is obviously one of them in Philadelphia, and then there's a handful of other guys uh, that have fared okay, but even their numbers are down. It's impossible to throw out base runners right now. And 
you are not only stealing off the catcher, you're stealing off the pitcher, you're stealing off the clock. So I, I, I do love that the stolen base is relevant again, but to a point where you're going to see pitchers just say, okay, I'm just going to use all three disengagements because I know that you're going to steal anyway. So I might as well give myself an extra opportunity to try and pick you off and fake you out. I've only seen it work once so far this year. Carlos Carrasco did it where he picked off a base runner on his third disengagement attempt because otherwise it would have been a balk because he knew he's probably going to run and we're not going to have an opportunity to throw him out. So I have the best pickoff move available to me right now. Why not try and use it and see? So I would like to see Major League Baseball maybe take a look at the numbers a little bit just to try and rein it in because I do think as much as the stolen base is a really exciting play in baseball. The caught stealing is also really exciting plays baseball as well. And it can completely change the momentum of an inning. So I, I would like to see catchers have at least a chance to throw base runners out a little bit, but it also comes back to pitchers are going to have to adapt and teams are going to have to adapt in ways to hold on runners in a different way compared to just being able to hold the baseball. I don't know if you happen to see when uh, Ronald Acuna stole his 70th base the other night. They kind of stopped the game for a second and he held the base up. And yeah, if you're in Atlanta, that was a fun moment. The Cubs broadcasters were not a fan of the delay in the game that was going on. How hard is that as a broadcaster when to decide when to put your opinion in there versus when to just go along to get along? Well, I I think it it depends on your personality as well. Uh, To me, I am not a very confrontational person, so I would probably just kind of let it go. Uh, and, and also recognize the impact of what's going on at times. Now, on TV, it's a little bit easier because you can just lay out and you can just let the situation unfold and you don't have to give your opinion. You can't do that on the radio unless all of a sudden you want the dead air alarm to start going off because you're not talking. So you have to interject with something. And sometimes that is your opinion. And your opinion may not be what most people agree with, but that's your opinion and you're entitled to it. So uh, I, I think you just have to pick and choose your opportunities. And if that situation where they felt that, yeah, 70 stolen bases is a pretty remarkable accomplishment and we combine that with the fact that he's only the only one to ever do it and also hit 40 home runs i don't know i think it just depends on the situation but also from a cubs perspective they're trying to remain in the wild card race they've had two really tough games in atlanta who it's amazing i give brian snitker credit that they've wrapped up the you know the the division they're trying for the number one seed and the starters are still out there every single game. So I give Atlanta credit because if you talk about integrity of the game, the Braves are continuing to go out there every single night and compete. So I think there's probably frustration with that as well. Uh, you have the perspective of knowing Phillies fans. Um, Spencer Strider said the other day that uh, he wishes there were no fans at the game or at least that there were none in the lower bowl. As somebody who's about to be part of the final series of the season, Mets versus Phillies, can would you ever recommend to Mets fans to say or to a Mets pitcher to say something like that before you go into a playoff? <laughs> no, and I, part of me thinks it was tongue in cheek. I don't know. I just can't imagine that Spencer Strider actually thinks that. <laughs> you talk to anybody in baseball, and they will tell you that it is better with fans. We all learned that in 2020. We all know that when we work in the game and go to a ballpark where there's not fans. So I don't know if he was serious. I And part of me has to think that he wasn't because Atlanta is one of the loudest ballparks there is and one of the great overall baseball experiences there is. So uh, 
I wouldn't recommend that to anybody, especially going into the playoffs, because no matter what environment you go into, they're going to use that whether you were serious or not. Is there any chance? So you, it, this is Mets Phillies. It it is now an official rivalry. I mean, for years it's New York versus Philadelphia, but I think now both teams have gotten to a level, even though it hasn't worked out for the Mets this year, to a level that this is a real rivalry. You, as the last three games of the season approach, do the Mets take their foot off the gas or do they just want to beat the Phillies the last three games? Well, I, I think for both of the for both teams, they're in a unique situation, right? So from the Mets perspective, it's three more opportunities to see starting pitching to go into spring with. It's, you know, guys are chasing milestones. They're they're you know, there's different things there. And, you know, from the Phillies perspective, it's an opportunity to set your rotation up. So it's it's a it's a weird series because not that, you know, from a record standpoint, the games don't matter. The Phillies right. have the number one wild card seed already locked up and the Mets are eliminated. So, you know, I think both teams are, you know, the Mets are just trying to finish out the season healthy. The Phillies are just trying to finish out the regular season healthy. So, yeah, there's obviously competitive juices still flowing. And whenever you step over the lines, you're going to be competitive and want to win. Uh, but I don't know. I, I don't know if if they look at it as it's another opportunity to beat the Phillies. I, I, I don't know. I don't have uh, enough of an insight into the guys in the clubhouse to know how they feel about that. Um, but I think it would be different if they were both still playing for something. I think if the Phillies hadn't locked up the number one seed yet and the Mets recognized that as an opportunity. And I talked with Brett Beatty about it the other day when he hit the home run off Kimbrell. I said, you showed so much emotion in that situation. So what do these games still mean to you guys? And he said, well, they're fighting for the top wildcard spot and we're not going to let them just have it. So as of last week, yeah, that still mattered. So I want to ask you the the flip side of the fan question. We talked about <clears throat> Spencer Strider and you know not wanting the the hostile atmosphere. We saw the exact opposite with Trey Turner this year with his struggles and then the fan reaction and how he has played after it. You're somebody who's watched this Philadelphia fan base through all levels. You've, you've grown up around the organization. What did you think about how that all went down this year? And and the way the player was able to come out of his struggles as somebody who's seen the struggles of players. Well, what we have to remember is no matter what market you're in, these guys are humans. They have human emotion. They go about their business to the best of their ability every single day. But their jobs and our jobs are talent-based jobs. And we have eyes and ears on us at all times where when you work in you know different industries, maybe you have two or three people that are constantly looking over you and trying to critique what you're doing. You know, these guys constantly have 40,000 people watching them live and then however many million people watching them, if it's a national game or thousands of people watching them on television. And the power of social media right now is just a different world that everybody has a voice and everybody can be reached. So when you watch guys like Trey Turner, to see the way that he responded to that, it shows the humanity in these guys that anybody can re will react positively to a positive response, right? That's how we operate as humans. Nobody enjoys to be heckled. Nobody enjoys to be booed. Nobody enjoys to be told that they're not doing their job correctly. We are all our biggest critics. We always will be. That's how we succeed. That's how we get better. 
So, yeah, we know when we're not doing well. And I'm sure Trey Turner knew that he wasn't playing up to his ability. We're talking about one of the best shortstops in baseball. So for him, I am sure that there was a massive weight lifted off his shoulders when he was able to step back and say, okay, I've got some support here. I'm I'm ready to go. You know, think about it. Think of it from like a perspective of like a stage actor or something like that who has a bad performance or maybe not the best of their performance, you know, not their best performance. And they step out and they get a standing ovation after the show. They're going to feel a lot better than themselves than they would if they had gotten booed off the stage or a comic that maybe felt like the joke didn't land the way that they wanted it to, but they still got a standing ovation. They're going to feel a lot better because of that than they would be if they were booed off the stage. And, and, and I think that there's obviously some kind of correlation between when Trey Turner started playing well again and and the response. And, and we see it in New York too, is that, is that when you listen to sports talk radio in New York, that they reference that moment as a way to rally around their players to make sure that they know that you've got their back. Well, one, one guy who loves the fans, who, who thrives off of the attention is, is a guy that you get to see every day in Pete Alonzo. He, he's having another amazing season despite the Mets not having the season that they wanted. What is it like to cover a guy like Pete Alonso, who's not only a great player, but just seems like a guy that just loves being in the market that he's in? Yeah, he's embraced the city without a doubt, and he's embraced the community. And he has done so much with the Alonzo Foundation to make an impact outside of the ballpark. But And then on the baseball field, you watch him every single day and think at any point, he's going to collide with the baseball that's going to go 500 feet. And he is like a lot of power hitters that once he gets rolling, there's no stopping him. Uh, so he he's fun to watch. He's fun because at any point, when a team is down, if he has two runners on, you feel like he can get you right back into the game. And, you know, watching him from afar for his first four years of his career, you knew he was special. And then you would look at his numbers in terms of his all-time rankings already as a Met. It's pretty remarkable what he's done in his first five years in the big leagues. So uh, he's fun to watch. It's pretty special to watch every single day. He's gone through a lot this year. He's dealt with injuries. Obviously, he's dealt with a team that hasn't lived up to expectations. And I think he would tell you that despite all the success he's had, he hasn't hit the way that he'd want to. Now, Pete Alonso is a lifetime 250, 260 hitter. I don't think a lot of people recognize that. I definitely didn't. You knew he hit 40 to 50 home runs every year and drove in 130. But he was a doubles hitter who hit for a relatively high average. Uh, so I, I, and I think that's what makes Pete such a special guy is that he's always chasing being better and he won't settle unless he's the best you've obviously gotten to watch a lot of baseball this year we're gonna head into the playoffs starting next week right now it looks like the phillies will open up against the diamondbacks for that series talk about what you've seen out of them zach allen struggled a little bit his last couple starts uh what should philly fans expect to see who don't stay up late for the west coast games uh out there well, Christian Walker can collide with a lot of baseballs. You know, I know Philly fans are really familiar with him just based on where he's from. Uh, Corbin Carroll is a really special player. We have the conversation a lot. Who's the National League Rookie of the Year? Because we think that Kodai Senga deserves a lot of recognition for what he's done. But I think Corbin Carroll is going to be the National League Rookie of the Year. And depending on when and if Arizona locks things up, can they line Merrill Kelly and Zach Gallen up to be the number one and number two starters? It is a tournament-style playoffs now 
And if you can set your starting rotation up to compete in a tournament style round, you you can concede. And you know, that's what Tori Lovello is hoping that his team can do is set their rotation up with Gallon and Merrill Kelly going one and two. And and then I think you go they can go toe-to-toe with anybody. You know, before you got your new gig, you were somebody who saw the prospects in this farm system for the Phillies that are really driving the team this year, whether it's the Rojas's or the 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 daycare. It's what's it like for you to to see this Phillies team that's it's kind of had a little bit of a turnover too. They've got their veteran players that still play their roles, but now they've got all these guys that came through the farm system that people questioned while you were there calling games. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, obviously, I don't have a chance to follow as closely as you know I did when I was working, you know, in the Phillies minor league system. So I only get a kind of a snapshot of what these guys are doing, and you know, we get our stat packs and stuff like that where I'm able to follow along and things like that. So you know, I never saw Johan Rojas in the minor leagues. I'd heard about him a lot, so I didn't really know what to expect. But then you see him go out, you see him watching, you watch him track baseballs and stuff like that. And it's pretty remarkable. And then, you know, guys like Stott and Bohm, you watch them kind of come through the league and and their stops in Lehigh Valley. And, and you felt that they were going to be different players. I don't know if you necessarily knew that they were going to be impact players the way they have been. I mean, Bryson Stott, based on the metrics, is a borderline gold glove second baseman. And and that's and that's pretty remarkable. And you look at the fact that Alec Bohm's committed, I think, four errors all season over at third base and he's kind of splitting time between first and third. So it, to be a successful team, you need to have a balance of veterans and young players to make an impact. Number one, rookies are cheap. There's club control there, and you can, can develop, develop them, and there's something to be said about the camaraderie of having guys come through the systems together, and then you have to com- you have to pair that with veterans. And we've seen that here in New York where Steve Cohen has said that you can't sustain success with just free agents. You have to build from the farm system. They are the backbone of your roster and where a lot of your success comes from. Pat, before we let you go to finish your first season in the majors, what was the the thing that maybe that you weren't expecting when you got to the majors that when you got here, you said, wow. It's a great question. I think there's a couple of things. I think that you take for granted how lucky you are at times and you just kind of go through the day-to-day operations and then you take a step back and you walk into a ballpark that you never thought you would ever see. You walk into Dodger Stadium, you know, you walk into Wrigley, you walk into Fenway and you say, okay, now this is a pinch me moment. And I, I kind of expected that I would have those, but I didn't know if I would necessarily take the step back and reflect on it the way that I did just because days are so fast. They're so busy. There's so much to do. You don't always have that opportunity. So for me, I'm thankful that I I took the time to to step back and look on where I was and how I got there. Uh, and, and And I do think that you recognize that you're watching the highest level there possibly is, and there was so much hard work to get there. Um, but you also watch the preparation and stuff like that. And I, and I don't think I, I really understood that. until I got to the big leagues over the last year and a half now is that these guys continue to work on their craft every single day. And they're always trying to get better and winning matters in the minor leagues, but development sometimes take precedence. 
when you're around a club that wants to win, you see how badly they do. You can see it in their faces. You can see it in their emotions. Uh, and, and that was pretty eye-opening for me. It was just to watch how these guys reacted and how badly they wanted to win. Well, we enjoy watching your continued success and always appreciate the time we get with you. Look forward to the next time and I uh, hope you enjoy calling the last series and then watching a little playoff baseball. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Welcome back from break here on the Heart of Sports. Jeff, uh, we talk a lot about the mental side of sports and who better to bring on than sports psychology coach David Essel, who has a new book out, Mental Mastery and Maximum Performance for for Professional Athletes. David, congratulations on the latest book. Thanks for the time today. Yeah, Jason, Jeff, so excited to be with you guys. Uh, you know, it's something that has been a part of my life since I was six. You know, as you read the book, I tell part of my story that at six years of age, I started sleeping with a basketball in my bed like a lot of kids do, you know. And then from then until today, it's just been a huge part uh, of my existence, helping athletes with their mental skills as well as mental health. Of course, you know, helping them overcome challenges, weaknesses, uh, and also something, guys, that a lot of people don't talk about that in the world of sports, sports psychology is crucial. These athletes, a lot of them are on the road 60 to 70% of the year. I mean, relationship challenges, challenges with children, you know, that's another big part of what we do. So we cover everything from addictions and addictions are huge in the world of professional athletes. I, you know, we, we wouldn't think about it until you start thinking about food addictions, uh, uh, gambling addictions, pot, alcohol, et cetera. Uh, but one of the reasons that I wrote the book at this very time, guys, is because the American College of Sports Medicine came out with this incredibly powerful survey. And it said that 35% of elite athletes right now are struggling deeply with mental health, anxiety, depression, ADD, ADHD, even uh, eating disorders. Like it's off the chart, right? And But in our private practice of 43 years of working with athletes, that's extremely underreported. The reality, the real reality is about 60% of elite athletes right now are struggling deeply with some type of separation anxiety from partners or family. Um, maybe there's there's extreme stress of not knowing if they're going to make the team, if they're going to play, if they're going, you know, I, and, and I look at some of these athletes and I, I've got to take my hat off to Russell Westbrook, you know, one of the most amazing guards that's ever played in the NBA. When he was asked to take a second seat with the Lakers last year, he you did not see a drop in his energy, passion, enthusiasm. That guy came off the bench like a freaking tornado for gosh sake, you know? So we have stories of people like this to lift current athletes. Of course, you know, we want every athlete and 60% are struggling right now. So we want them to have role models of people that have learned what we term as really powerful emotional regulation skills, which is taking a backseat. If that helps the team be a better uh, team, you know, uh, uh, taking the word I out, of course, as we always say. And, And then we want people to know that this world that we're in right now, it's not just the 
the American College of Sports Medicine. The NBA came out two years ago with NBA Mind Health. Uh, three years ago, the Indianapolis Colts came out with Kick the Stigma about mental health. You know, so we, we've got a ton of organizations and individual teams now coming to the forefront saying professional athletes suffer and struggle more than you can ever imagine. And, you know, for me and my work, it's a blessing. It's a blessing that we have Kevin Loves of the world, uh, Max Crosby, uh, NFL and uh, for for the, the Raiders, just came out three years sober, uh, talking about the importance of rehabilitation centers. You know, so in the book, we cover everything so that athletes can see, hey, there's hope. If I'm struggling with this, we have Max Crosby who overcame his addiction. If I'm struggling with this, you know, so the book is really about a motivational uh, place for athletes to go. But, you know, I just got done with an interview, guys, a couple minutes ago with uh, an individual who just talks to the general public. And he loved the book because it's stories of athletes overcoming challenges just like you and I. So we might get inspired as an everyday person to read like, you're kidding me. Novak Djokovic went through that in order to become the greatest male tennis player ever. A lot of people don't know what he went through to get there. And maybe some of these stories that we tell people at home who aren't even athletically in nature um, will take on and go, oh, my gosh, I'm going to try that. If it worked for him, maybe it'll work for me. I don't know if you had a chance to watch the, the new Netflix series on tennis players, but the, the series is, a, I think, a 10 part series. And it talks a lot about the mental side of tennis and how hard it is, especially for individual sport athletes to deal with with the mental side of tennis. What is what is the challenge that the tennis players, um, people that are not in team sports have that maybe team sports athletes do have? It, it, it's a great it's a great question, Jeff. You know, finally in tennis, they're allowing coaches to actually interact legally with their players on the court. So that's a good move. You know, it, uh, a couple of years ago, players and coaches couldn't interact hardly at all unless you had some kind of secret sign language, for God's sake. So they're allowing people now, the coaches, to interact um, it, it's a great question, individual sports versus team sports. You know, we have a, a, a college athlete going pro, a college tennis player going pro. His father was his coach the whole time. And then when he got to this level, his father knew he needed to go up a higher level. And as we're working together, one of the things that this young tennis player, say he's young, he's 21, uh, never mastered was what happens after a double fault. You know, if you don't have the emotional capability to regulate yourself after a double fall, it's going to throw you off. So what happened with him, and, and you'll see this at the lower levels for sure before they get to the pros, and some pros too, is that he had no emotional regulation. So you double fall, he'd swing the racket in the air, he'd curse some words. Of course, he goes to the next service box and his brain isn't even there. So we have techniques like cognitive behavioral therapy that we teach our athletes how to allow a, a missed shot, uh, a double fall, uh, whatever sport that they're in, we give them psychological tools to snap them out of what just happened to get back into the present moment. And it's part of the work of a sports psychology coach, you know, is to have these tools available because Jeff, everyone goes through something like that, you know, in an individual sport, they don't have four other teammates running down the court with them saying, don't worry about that last shot. We got you. It's a very different mindset. And so these individual sport players, tennis, golf, et cetera, super need to understand the power of psychological tools that we teach in order to help them stay focused and in the moment. 
So on the team side of sports, we often talk, you know, we when, when we're talking baseball, we talk about roles in the bullpen and how important it is to have a defined role so you know what your responsibility is so that you can prepare. Can you talk about how important routines and roles are for athletes so that they can be at their best when they need it? Well, you, you ask a great question, Jason. And one of the things we teach all of our athletes is daily ritualistic steps to take, you know, starting first thing in the morning, like our athletes do not open open up any electric device for at least 20 minutes. Now, this might not seem like much, but you know, the average person, the first thing they do when they wake up, they roll over, grab their iPhone, Android, whatever it might be there. As I raise my phone, as I raise my hand (laughs) with my phone. Thank you, Jason, for your honesty (laughs) and your vulnerability. I appreciate that. That's right. That's right. And while David's talking, we're looking at our phones, you know, Um, but it's become an addiction, right? And, and so what happens is with, especially with athletes, high level entrepreneurs, um, radio, television, sports hosts like yourselves, uh, the the way that we can get a better jump on our life is to control the amount of time we spend that are unproductive in nature. Now, we can justify anything. We could say, well, I have to know what happened last night in sports, so I have to look at it first thing in the morning, right? Well, that is not true. We can wait 20 minutes, and that score is still going to be there, and that story is still going to be there. But how you start your day is one of the most crucial things in the world. You know, how you start your day from a fueling point of view, fluids, food, intake, all that, how you start your day from a mental point of view. You know, we, I mean, in the book, we talk about so many different people, uh, LeBron James, of course, Novak Djokovic, how they love meditation. But I'll tell you the story that blew my mind in an interview with Deontay Wilder, uh, the great heavyweight boxer. I had never imagined guys and you'll, and, and by the way, my book, the audible uh, mental mastery of maximum performance for professional athletes is free at our website. So you can get the whole freaking book, me reading it, which is much better than an AI reader. I'll tell you that right now. So, you know, I I have a lot of excitement, but Deontay Wilder, oh my gosh, all the guy wants to talk about is mental health techniques. He spends so much of his day in prayer, meditation, doing all these things that we teach regular people to do to decrease stress. This guy is magnificent. He said that his meditation has become so powerful that when he gets into the ring, if there's 20, 40, 60,000 fans, he does not hear one. He said his focus is so amazing. Everyone can take advantage of Deontay Wilder's statement. It doesn't matter if you work at a convenience store, you sweet sleep streets or you're a multi-billionaire. When you start to utilize these techniques, now remember, these are some of the highest paid individuals in the world and they're relying on Pilates, meditation, yoga, clean eating. LeBron James trainer says that LeBron James does cheat in his meals and his cheat meal is a chocolate chip cookie every two weeks. <laughs> so we can learn from these guys. Right. But but you talked about Deontay Wilder, Wilder and, and how he doesn't hear any of the fans. That's not realistic for a lot of athletes and a lot of people in general. They do they do internalize a lot of this information. And and, and you know, for us, we've been watching, I don't know if you know him, the shortstop Trey Turner. And sure. and the story of Trey Turner is is that he came to the Phillies this year, signed a three hundred million dollar contract, struggled when he started, heard some booze even said, hey, look, I deserve to be booed. 
my mother deserved to be moved. And, he, you know, he made a joke out of it, but it clearly impacted him. And then the Phillies fans decided to cheer him. And his his season has exploded in a positive direction since that one moment. What do you do for athletes who can't? You're not going to have all of the fans do what happened in Philadelphia this one time. How do you help athletes who, who internalize the pressure, who internalize the, the negative comments and thoughts that they hear or read. Jeff, it's an interesting question. Let let me flip it on the other side and tell you the benefit of fans booing. I have major league pitchers that I work with right now that use the adrenaline of the opposing fans to be at their best. They pitch much better on the road than at home, right? So it's a mental mindset. And, And again, this is the role that someone like myself, a sports psychology coach, utilizes. We would teach him how to handle that. You know, the expectation is through the roof, right? You get this massive contract and fans, ownership, everyone, uh, reporters, et cetera, expect you to be the best. If you are having an off game month season, you need to have the psychological tools available to help you to deal with that. And they're available. You know, they're available for everyone. You know, I I love uh, the mindset of Reggie Miller, uh, former Indiana Pacers star guard, where he says if he ever missed 10 shots in a row and he told himself in his mind he made 10 shots in a row and he just keep going on and shooting. And I think that's a great example of mental discipline. He never allowed missed shots to get in the way of him being a great shooter. But he said there are other shooters that he's worked with that could have been better than him, but allowed the mental aspect of the game when they missed three in a row. They would shut down and they wouldn't shoot for the rest of the quarter. While Reggie is sitting there going, oh, I'm just going to pump up 10 more. But see, that's a mental approach and that's mental health. Someone who has these kind of tools, guys, can about face about any kind of challenge and not let it affect them at a level that it might you or I. And, and I go to Jimmy Butler last year from the NBA playoffs. He was obviously severely injured with an, an ankle injury. But, you know, every time he was asked about his ankle and there, I mean, if you guys remember the playoffs, there was times he was standing in the corner just as a decoy. He was even yeah, unf- unfortunately, we remember the playoffs and the fact that Jimmy Butler left Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hear you. We're not oh, still well, sore about that or anything. Yeah, yeah not, not, not that it, we, it still bothers us, nope. right? Well, right. I, I'll tell you a Moses Malone story that, that, that will make you smile there you much go. better. There, <laughs> you, there you go. As a matter of fact, let's go right and make you guys feel awesome. Yes. So uh, there's, there's two stories I'm going to tell you about Moses Malone. One is a personal one when I met him, uh, and then one is one that uh, Charles Barkley is just incredible uh, during an interview, what he said about Moses Malone. But um, so, you know, Moses Malone, I was 15. He was 17. We both were at Dave Bing's all-star camp in the Pocono Pines, Pennsylvania. And uh, I remember being at the camp and there was about 300 kids there. And we had heard a message. There was this special kid being flown in from Virginia. And uh, all of a sudden, from out of nowhere, this limousine pulls up and out of the back stands this six foot nine, 16, 17 year old kid with a torn, dirty white T-shirt, shorts that were held together by a safety pin. I mean, I can remember this. I was 14 or 15. I can remember it like it was yesterday. Enough laces just to hold the shoes onto his feet but the soles were completely worn out. I mean, he was basically walking on bare ground. So we see this guy and all of us kids are like in awe, who is this? And he's coming in in a limousine and how do we don't know who he is? And uh, about seven o'clock that night, Dave Bing opens up the loudspeakers at the camp and says, uh, in five minutes, I challenge Moses Malone to a one-on-one match, court one. Click, microphone goes off. We couldn't believe it, right? We're sitting there going, he's about our age. 
and Dave Bing's an all pro and Dave Bing is this. And I went to Syracuse. Of course, Dave went to Syracuse. That's how I, I found out about the camp. And, and Moses Malone held his own for like the first, they were playing to 21 for the first 10 to 12 points. I mean, we couldn't freaking believe it. Right. And then Dave Bing just became the monster that he was. And even though he wasn't as tall as some of the other players in the league, Dave Bing was a massively powerful player. So the very first chance I get to see Moses, he's up against an NBA all-star and it blows my mind. And as we got to know him over the week, we realized that he never spoke one time unless spoken to. It, his talent was so huge, but he would barely ever speak. And he would always just smile and nod or something. He didn't really speak much. Well, later on, I find out that he had struggles speaking. You know, he had, he had a, a, an impediment. And and so they actually they nicknamed him Mumbles uh, because of the fact that he couldn't speak as clearly as people expected. But, you know, that was something I followed him, you know, when he died in 2000. 2015 in his sleep, it crushed me. Um, I mean, how many NBA forward centers, you know, do 50 points and 30 rebounds in a game for gosh sake, right? To winning two MVPs. Come on now, let's let's rally around this guy. This guy is freaking amazing. So he was an inspiration to me my whole life. Uh, you know, I played two years at college at Syracuse. I wasn't good enough. I could have played two more, but I decided to opt out of the last two years. I wasn't good enough to go pro, but I never You, sh- you should have entered the transfer portal. I should have. I wish it was That's available right. back then. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, the other thing I got screwed over by playing 43 years ago, there was no three-point shot. <laughs> oh, you definitely had a better shot then. I did want to ask you, we got about four minutes left before we have okay. to go. Um, how important is it for not only other athletes, but for society to see these athletes redefining toughness? It used to be fight through it, be tough. Now, being vulnerable and honest about how you're feeling is another way to show toughness for these athletes. Can you talk about that and the impact it has on others? Jason, somebody like Kevin Love. Yeah, it's a phenomenal question. I mean, you know, in the NBA Mind Health commercials that the NBA ran last year, I mean, Kevin Love said it a hundred times. DeMar Rosen said many things, you know, but Kevin said, the greatest call that I've ever made in my life was the one reaching out for help for my mental health challenges. You know, when you see someone like Kevin Love, who's highly respected in this league, you know, extremely respected man. When you see him coming out with statements like that, when you see the Indianapolis Colts coming out with massive new ads, kick the stigma. I mean, we know there's problems. Listen, the NBA, NFL, MLB, you know, Major League Baseball has one of the most incredible stories with Andrew Tolles. Uh, you know, they released him as a pitcher. Most people know this story. Uh, he was diagnosed with uh, sch- uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and they re-signed him so that he could get the mental health help he needed or he would have been homeless and probably dead in a very short period of time. So mental health is huge. And if I have a moment to tell the Charles Barkley, do we have a second for that? Yeah, we do. Do. Always for Charles. Okay. Okay. For anything for Charles and (laughs) Moses, right? So, this, this is such a cool story, and, and this is a story the public needs to hear and to apply to your own life. And I tell a story in my book that almost matches uh, Charles' story, but mine was with a coach and his was with Moses. So he comes onto the team. First time he meets Moses Malone, he comes up, he says, oh, my gosh, you know, I respect your career, and and I, I want to be more like you. And Moses Malone, Charles said, Moses Malone looks at him and he goes, you know, you're fat, you're lazy, and you're slow. Lose 20 pounds. And so he walks away, right? And Charles is going, this is my inner introduction to Moses Malone. So Charles was offended at first. And then he said, well, what the heck, you know, I'll do what he says. So he loses 20 pounds. Now he's mm-hmm. down from 290 to 270. And he comes up to Moses and says, hey, Moses, all right, listen, dude, I did it. I dropped 20 pounds. I'm down to 270. Moses looks at him and goes, you're still fat. You're still slow. You're still lazy. You're never going to make it as an all-star. 
and he walks away. Charles goes, what is going on here? I'm doing everything this guy says. He doesn't give me any credit. He says, screw it. I'm losing another 20. He loses another 20 pounds. He's down to 250. He comes and goes, Moses, finally. I'm at 250. He says, Moses looks at me and he goes, you're too light. You can more all the stories. 260 happy. is the right height. 260 <laughs> is the weight you should play at to be an all star. And Charles followed his advice. And of course, the rest is history, as they say, oh right? But I, I just think it's such a great story. It's a great example of both humility on Charles's part and the role of a mentor in Moses. And, you know, I think we need to look at that. Sometimes we have bosses that we think are idiots that really are smart. And they have our best interest in heart. They may not have great communication skills and be able to tell us things in a fluffy way. But, you know, we need to look at that. And it brought me back in the book. I tell the story of my freshman coach in high school who I hated for two years, Larry Miller. I couldn't stand the guy. He had me you know, working on my defense 90 percent of practices. He had me practice taking offensive fouls constantly. I couldn't stand him. I wanted to be a shooting guard. Come on, give me the ball. I'm a shooting guard. Right. So I was with him for two years and I left. And guys. When I finally got up to the level at Syracuse University, all the coaches kept asking me, was, who taught you how to slide and take those charges? Who taught you how to be an animal on defense? Who taught you how to pass like that? And everything was Larry Miller, the guy I couldn't stand. So take that as a lesson. Sometimes the mentors, teachers we have are tough with us, and sometimes they're right. The book is Mental Mastery and Maximum Performance for Professional Athletes. Thank you, David Essel, sports psychology coach. Look forward to talking to you again. Jason, Jeff, it was awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Jeff, that doesn't leave us much time to talk amongst ourselves. You know, it's fascinating talking to these guys and about the mental part of of sports. Um, I'll just leave it at that because uh, I don't think we have any words left. Nah, he took them all. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.